This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show. Hi and welcome to this week's show of Property Matters where we talk all things property. Just recording this one out of studio today so apologies if it sounds a little bit different but... It is Easter and I'm recording this at home. I have a laptop full of mini tabs of real estate news to bring to you today. And this, of course, is Property Matters, where we talk all things real estate. And just kicking things off, you might be wondering what's happening with the market because there's a lot of interesting news headlines these days that talk about the the growth, the lack of growth, the market changing and so forth. And it gets pretty confusing to know what's going on and how to chop through all the headlines. The headlines can sometimes be a bit sensationalist. And so I thought, well, let's just get down to the bottom of this and let's look at what the market is actually doing based on statistics. So the Real Estate Institute of New Zealand monthly property report came out just recently, and this is relating to March of 2022. And comments by Jen Baird, the Real Estate Institute of New Zealand CEO, says that March solidifies the changes in the market seen over the past months as pressure on property prices eases, inventory levels increase, demand softens and sales activity decelerates. That's all according to the latest data and insights from the Real Estate Institute of New Zealand. The median prices for residential property across New Zealand have increased 7.9% annually from 825,000 in March 2021 to 890,000 in March 2022. So it's interesting to know that things have still been increasing. It's just the rate in which the increases have been happening that has changed in all regions um, without exception. So the median residential price for New Zealand outside of Auckland has increased 14.1% annually. Uh, that's from 679000 a year ago to 775000 That's still almost $100,000 in one year. So things are still growing, but it does show that Auckland has eased off with that 7.9% increase. In March, unusually, there were no regions with record high median prices. And you might be wondering what's happening around our region. But just before we get there, I'll just mention that Marlborough is the first region to see negative annual movement in the median price since May 2020. The region saw a 0.6% annual decrease from 664 to 660,000 in March 2022. So what's happening closer to home? Manawatu Wanganui saw the annual rate of increase contract again in March. In other words, it's slowing down the rate of increase. And this is the sixth continuous or consecutive decrease in the percentage of annual growth, down from a 37.3% annual increase in September 21 to a 7.6% annual increase this month. 
So it's interesting to see that that has slowed somewhat, but prices are still going up. If I had my crystal ball handy, I would probably just mention that Manawatu has uh, still a lot happening in this region, a lot of people moving here, and I believe we will continue to move upwards uh, over time, and some areas may just drop back a little bit. So let's just see what happens there, but that's my thoughts. It's based on a lot of reading, a lot of seeing what's happening behind the scenes, and aware of what's happening in the market. So you can take from that what you want, but I think owning property and holding on to it is still very good for this region. So the report then goes on to talk about Manawatu Wanganui region, and it says that it's long been known for its affordability, attracting first home buyers and investors alike. And like many regions across New Zealand, the area experienced high growth in median residential property over the past two years, and that's probably around about that 30% per year for the last couple of years. So the median price for residential property in March was $610,000, and that's an increase, as we've mentioned, of 7.6% on the same time last year. There's fewer properties available for purchase under the $500,000 price mark. And in Palmerston North, there, there are still great properties available within that 550 to 650000 price bracket, although the impact of the CCCFA, that's the lending uh, require, uh, legislation around the credit and financial side of things um, and, and the impact of that, the rising interest rates and the loan to value ratios is seeing first home buyer and investor present fall off. Presence, I should say. There has been a steady increase in population in the Manawatu Wanganui region and new residents are drawn to this area because it's great for families, it has excellent tertiary education, comparatively affordable housing and easy travel to Wellington, Napier and New Plymouth. And new economic opportunities, it says, are bringing more people to the cities, such as Palmerston North. And the establishment of the major distribution hub, the planned Manawatu Gorge Road, all provide ample employment. And Wanganui itself has gone through a period of growth and fielding. Uh, the small country town is attracting people wanting a lifestyle change. Martin, with its affordable properties, has seen an influx of people taking advantage of the price point in the town. A number of sections there, dozens have sold recently for people building. And in Sanson and Bulls, development of new builds and subdivisions have shot up as they align for a further population bump to support the increasing resulting uh, the increase resulting from personnel transferred to the Royal New Zealand Air Force Ohakia base from Fanua Pai. I'm having a good day for being tongue twisted today from Fanua Pai, excuse me. So the challenge for the area of, of Manawatu Wanganui with the expected increase of population will be a shortage of investors with rental properties in order to support this growth. And in my other capacity um, in life, I see that, yes, there is a great shortage in, in rental properties uh, com com compared to the number of people moving to this area. So who's active in the market at the moment? Owner-occupiers are the most active buyers in the market presently, with first-home buyers and investors taking a step back. In other words, people that already own their own home buying another, whether it's upsizing or downsizing. They say in particular the pool of first-home buyers has declined. The requirements imposed by the CCCFA and the 20% LVRs remain a challenge for the first-home buyers, with rising interest rates and an increase in lower-end property prices impacting the ability to end the, uh, enter the market. Changes to the Tenancy Act and the 40% 
loan-to-value ratios are causing issues for investors in the region, even those with several properties in their portfolio are hitting pause, uh, the report says. In areas such as Palmerston North, while there has been no mass exodus of investors, some investors are pulling out. That being said, opportunity is arising. Some developers are creating purpose-built, medium-density housing, bringing quality homes to the market on a smaller site that can provide a better return and new options for renters. So as the market settles into its new phase, there's volatility across the regions. Coming off the back of the major surge through 2021, the Manawatu Wanganui market has seen a quick switch from buoyant seller's market to a finance-ready buyer's market, according to agents in the area. In March of 2022, last month, sales activity in the region was down 29% annually. That's sales activity, while the median days to sell increased by 15 At the same time, inventory levels increased 105.2% compared to a year earlier. So we're really going to see how that sort of pans out over the next wee while, but I just wanted to spend a little bit of time on that today with with the market just to uh, put that into context. Again, I feel that things will continue to go nicely for a period of time uh, yet. So I just wanted to spend a little bit of time now on uh, a little section that I like to call Bad Landlords, Bad Tenants, where we look at some of the Uh, situations that people manage to get themselves into and what the consequences are when renting or renting out rental properties. This first article from Stuff says landlord must pay $300 after posting, must pay a tenant $300 after posting photos of her belongings online. So how did this happen? The photos were posted on TradeMe and the landlord's website a week before the tenant's one-year fixed-term tenancy ended in an ad for a new tenant. According to a recently released tenancy tribunal decision, the tenant said she only gave permission for the photos to be used for the advertising on the condition her personal belongings be blurred. However, the landlord did not uphold the agreement and posted photos that were not blurred. Both the landlord and tenant were granted name suppression by the tenancy tribunal. The location of the dwelling was also suppressed. The photos remained online for three weeks despite the tenant contacting the landlord to remove them. She told the tribunal seeing the photos online caused her distress and she was concerned about her security. The landlord argued the tenant's request was unreasonable but admitted she did not wait for a response before posting the photos online. She said the photos were taken from a distance and they felt did not show any personal information. She also claimed the tenant had showed retaliatory behaviour in rejecting proposals for viewings and refusing access to the rental. The tribunal said that while the landlord regarded the tenant's request as unreasonable, ignoring the tenant's request and posting photos that showed her personal belongings were an intrusion to her private life, so be careful of that if you're a landlord posting photos. The length of time the photos remained online added to the tenant's distress, the tribunal said. Further, the tribunal acknowledged that there had been personal differences between the landlord and the tenant which led to some tension, but was satisfied that was not the sole basis for the claim. It found the landlord breached the tenant's right to quiet enjoyment and privacy, and she was ordered to pay the tenant $300 in compensation. So let's head down the bad tenant avenue. This this headline here from the New Zealand Herald, Tenants ordered to pay up after $30,000 of methamphetamine damage to a house. It says here that tenants with a desire for Class A drugs have created more than $30,000 in decontamination costs at their rental property 
after tests revealed methamphetamine levels of up to 11 times higher than the national safety standard. And I can tell you that's significant, very significant. While the landlord was insured for such an event, it wasn't enough to cover the clean-up. The Tenancy Tribunal decision released this month said the decontamination costs exceeded $30,000. But the landlord's losses were only insured up to that sum, less a $2,500 excess. So the two tenants moved into the Pocono property managed by Barfoot and Thompson in July 2020 after baseline test for, after baseline testing for methamphetamine was undertaken, the decision detailed. A year later, their tenancy ended on July 23rd, 2021, and after they vacated the property, a composite test for meth was done. It showed the drug had been used inside the home, and so a detailed assessment was then undertaken. Meth levels of up to 16.9 micrograms per 100 centimetres were detected throughout, uh, exceeding the current New Zealand standard of 1.5 micrograms per 100 centimetres squared. So the landlord then applied for the tribunal for compensation and reimbursement of the bond. So they were therefore found to be liable for costs in order to immediately pay the landlord just over 13500 Compensation included the insurance excess, over $6,000 for the meth testing. Wow, that's a lot. Just my opinion. $1,000 in exemplary damage and replacement of the blinds, range hood and heat pump. The tenant's bond of $2,400 was also to be paid to the landlord. So really um, interesting there. Probably one thing to take away from that article is uh, to just make sure that you've got good insurance and make sure that, or at least check that you're ins- whether your insurance company requires a baseline test, because you can see there there was no problem with the insurance company paying out uh, once they knew there was a baseline test and then a test at the end of the tenancy. So I'm just finding my way to, to another article here, and like I say, I've got thousands of tabs, a slight exaggeration in front of me here. But this does lead on to another question with regards to landlords and uh, the legislation that I've mentioned a couple of times uh, that's been, uh, there's consultations going on with regards to the regulation of property management or the property management industry. And you may recall my personal view is that there should be actually two levels of education and regulation, one for property management companies and a lower threshold for landlords because so many of these decisions that go through court and are found in the bad bad landlord section of this uh, podcast and, and broadcast are because people just don't have the knowledge. It's terrible. And so this comes about because, and this is an article by uh, Sasha Green that um, there is saying that there is a need for education amongst landlords. So landlords making clauses after the tenancy agreement signed is on the rise. And the Citizens Advice Bureau says what people try to include is pretty shocking. Tenancy Tribunal has just awarded tenants $400 after the landlord added clauses of no trampolines, no parties and no candles after they had signed. And this was an article, you'd probably need to find this online at ZB. But just to paraphrase, the Tenancy Tribunal found that these clauses were not enforceable. And really, what what that means is you cannot hold the tenants to account in court. 
having a clause added after a, any contract is, uh, is complete is something that's pretty unusual, I've got to say that. But also there are a number of clauses that landlords quite often put in to tenancy agreements that are not covered in law. And in this country, residential tenancy law supersedes anything you can have in an agreement. However, going back to the, the, the bad tenant side of things, this article from the Otago Daily Times. Landlord awarded nearly $10,000 after animal faeces rot flooring in the South Otago rental. Now, I'm just pausing because I'm thinking, what on earth would it have been like in order to rot the floor? Isn't that incredible? So let's just have a, have a listen, well, a read, I should say. I'll have a read. You guys can have a listen if you like. Carpet at the rental property where a baby had been living was so soiled by animal feces that it had to be ripped up, revealing the excrement had rotted the floorboards. It says the tenant scarped from the Clinton South Otago rental property a week before her tenancy expired, avoiding the exit inspection. I'm not surprised. She left behind a significant clean-up and damage which included the rotting floor and walls that needed to be repainted. The landlord has since been awarded nearly $10,000 after he applied to the Tenancy Tribunal for compensation, rent arrears and a refund of the bond. According to the tribunal's decision released this month, the tenant was on a fixed-term tenancy. She vacated the week for its expired and also took the keys with her. Now, under the Residential Tenancies Act 1986, the woman was obliged to leave the premises reasonably clean and tidy and to remove all rubbish. But the decision stated there was a significant amount of rubbish and possessions left behind and a clean-up that cost nearly $5,000 was required. In the ruling, it says, This included the inside of the home and also the outside, together with the outbuildings, and included the laundry, toilet and storeroom. All required a significant clean, padlocks required replacing, fire alarms reinstalled, and painting of the kitchen, it said. It goes on to say, The carpets required a deep clean before it was realised that, in fact, they needed to be replaced due to animal faeces that led to the rotting floor underneath. The landlord further claimed there were more than two people living at the premises, which was in breach of the Act, as it exceeded the maximum number of people allowed for in the tenancy agreement. Another alleged breach was that the tenant had removed the smoke alarms. Now, if you're a tenant and you're listening to this, whatever you do, do not remove the smoke alarms, not only for your own health, but it creates uh, a massive fine for doing that. So the landlord gave evidence that they were often removed, and this upset him given there was a young baby living at the home. Following the, a hearing which the tenant did not show up for, the tribunal accepted all of the landlord's claims. The tenant was ordered to pay the landlord a little under $9,000, which included costs of $500 for the carpet insurance excess, clean-up at the property, rent arrears and exemplary damages for subletting and removing the smoke alarms. The bond centre was to pay $1,000 to the landlord, the tribunal ordered. So... Um, that's one of the things in tenancy law that really has a very large uh, exemplary damage uh, amount attached to it, and that is anything to do with uh, fire alarms or not having a safe place for, um, or a safe, not having the home so that it can warn the tenants of a fire. So whoever's responsible for either non-working smoke alarms or taking smoke alarms down and so forth can cop a very hefty fine indeed. 
So we'll move on to here, and um, we've just got a little uh, situation here, which is uh, one of those things that you have on on radio sometimes, is that the computer has stopped working, and I'm uh, just waiting for that to come back in. Um, and so after all those horror stories, let's look at this article by Katrina Shanks on Stuff Business. It says, Investing 101, should you still invest in property? Now, I know what you're thinking. We just had some horror stories, but those people all had sufficient insurance. If you ever want to know more about uh, insurance options, it can be very good for your rental property. Uh, just just Google me, Greg Watson and Property Matters, and I'm sure you'll find your way to me. Uh, or here through MPR, one or two people's radio.nz. Now this is Katrina Shanks. She's a Chief Executive of Financial Advice Limited. This is an opinion piece. She says property's always been a popular choice for Kiwis as a form of investment, going back as far as anyone cares to remember. And Reserve Bank figures show that since 1965, actual house prices have risen significantly. Up until 1991, the average annual increase was 12%, but after low and stable inflation that was established that year, it dropped to 7%. But that's still much higher than the returns of the share market over a comparable period and certainly higher than the rate of inflation. She says, while there's always ups and downs, as I've seen over the past two years, property remains one of the best investments you can make. She says, uh, I recently wrote about the four main investments to protect your money from the erosion of the inflation. Shares, property, cash and fixed interests. And I said, one of the keys to investing is staying ahead of the rate of inflation. Well, like shares, the figures above show property over time will do just that. So she says, let's take a look at its different forms and the benefits to be wary of. So with any investment, you need to look at your risk before you start, and that's how much money you can afford to lose if things don't work out and the market slumps or mortgage interest rates jump. Risk is also directly related to when you're going to need the money you're investing and where to invest it. For example, are you approaching retirement or are you a long way from that? Can you afford to lose money on an investment in the short term? If your circumstances change, how long could it take you to sell the property? She suggests you should also look at your finances and see what you can afford and do that by understanding your income, wages in other words, your outgoings, that's all your living expenses, and with property, the tax implications and bright line tests. She goes on to talk about different forms of property investment. She says you can buy a property with tenants or buy one to flip for a quick profit or a dunger to do up and sell. She says, whatever you decide, your investment property has to be practical. Will it give you the capital growth you want? Will it be able to create a good revenue stream until you decide what to do next? A good rule is to not just buy it, or not to buy it just because it looks good. I mean, that won't necessarily give you the return you want. It has to work for you, and the numbers have to stack up. Uh, Just in my view, uh, you should look at um, really what you... The numbers as being paramount and less sort of buying on the emotional side of things or what you might like. So the numbers, she says, should be your top consideration. Do your research, including getting a land information memorandum, although if you're in Palmerston North, get a residential property information inquiry. Um, And these things are just making sure that, um, I guess, anything unforeseen uh, won't cause a problem. 
So one of the most popular property investments and one that has the most benefits is the one that enables you to create a passive income while owning an asset that grows over time. That's sort of the, the goose that lays the golden egg. So that's a property where the tenants pay a good proportion if not all of your outgoings, while the property hopefully appreciates in value and you get capital growth when and if you decide to sell. So the outgoings are typically things like mortgage repayments, rates and even maintenance and upkeep. If the rent covers all your outgoings, then maybe over the long term it could create some incomes you don't have to work or certainly if you're heading towards retirement, it could help with regards to a little bit of extra pocket money. Because at some point, perhaps when the mortgage is paid off, You may have to decide if you want to keep the tenant on or sell. But then you decide what's more useful for your lifestyle plans, a $200,000 profit when you sell or, say, $600 income a week. So property does give you some good, uh, good options there. You do have to pay tax on the profit from rental income, but nothing from the profit of the sale as long as it's outside the bright line test. And that's now, if you've bought recently, after March of last year, um, you can have to pay tax if it's sold within 10 years, unless it's a new build. But if rent covers most of your outgoings, and you're benefiting anyway from capital gains, so you could always wait till it's outside the bright line test before selling, and that maximises your profit. The downside to renting is having to do constant inspections of the property, keeping up to date with regulative changes and having new tenants of existing tenants, or having to find new tenants of existing tenants move out or having to pay someone to do it. The trick is find the right property in the first place, uh, getting the deposit, convincing the bank you're a good risk and getting an interest rate and setting a rent that makes it economic. In the current market, it's not as easy as it was before the pandemic struck with interest rates rising and credit tightening. And so you can look at different styles of property, uh, size, type, apartments, um, flats, houses, and so forth. She says that all property, in all, she says, better be careful, I say that the right way around, in all, property is a safe investment, but you do do need to tread carefully. Mortgages and maintenance are big commitments that that may mean you have to remove some of those nice-to-haves from your budget to supplement the costs of the properties. And in this region, it's often the case that you do have to top things up. So if you treat it like a savings scheme, as rents increase, that would become easier. She goes on to say that there are lots of things to consider, but one rule that she likes is the one that says you should buy when you can afford it, not necessarily when you think it's a great time to buy, because that's when everyone else will be looking as well. That could mean you're paying a premium, but it will make it harder for you to realise capital gain you're looking for. But she says for herself, there's something about bricks and mortar that feels safe and secure as a form of investment. But over the last few years, being a landlord has become increasingly more complex and harder to navigate. So going back to the comment I made earlier in the show, I believe that regulation should also apply to landlords who maybe have two two or three properties uh, who don't have them managed, or two or more properties that don't have them managed so that they are educated in such a way that they're going to protect the tenants, protect the houses and protect their future. Surely that's not too much to ask when we're dealing with people's lives and dealing with uh, the large financial commitments that are involved. That's all we've got for this week in Property Matters. Thanks for listening. Uh, Recording in my lounge uh, as opposed to the studio this week due to Easter. I hope you've had a lovely Easter and thanks for listening and we'll catch you again in a week's time here on npr.nz or where all good podcasts are found.
Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate.